You know, in the not-too-distant past, the spiritual trajectory of our country was dramatically impacted by a single uh, life-altering conversation between an older gentleman and a young teenage guy. You see, there was a 17-year-old guy who had decided that he wanted to leave kind of the quiet life in the country and head to the big city of Boston and start over. He came from a rather impoverished family. He didn't have a really good education, and he was hoping he could turn over a new leaf once he made it to Boston. But once he arrived there, he realized that when you're 17 years old and you don't have a great education, it's hard to get a good paying job in the big city. So he winds up taking a job at his uncle's shoe store for a little bit just to pay ends meet. Well, at the time, he didn't really have a place to stay either, so his uncle offered for him to stay at his place free of charge while he landed on his feet, but there was a catch. And the catch was this young guy had to go to church with the uncle every Sunday morning. And that was a pretty big catch for him because this particular guy wasn't from a religious family. He didn't really have an interest in spiritual things, but it the alternative of going to church on Sunday mornings or living under the overpass of Boston, he kind of chose to take the church and living with his uncle free of charge. So he winds up going to this church and he starts going to a Sunday school class. And right off the bat, the Sunday school class, uh, the teacher, I think his name was Ed or something, Ed Kimball, he gets up there. And as he's kind of teaching and looking across the crowd, he recognizes that there's this one young guy in particular who's obviously new. He's got a brand new Bible. They're preaching out of the gospel of John and he's thumbing through Genesis and Exodus looking for it, right? So kind of the dead giveaway. So over the next few weeks, he begins to build a relationship with this young guy. And finally, one afternoon, uh, God begins to put it on his heart that he should go visit this young guy at the place that he works and just kind of have a spiritual conversation with him. That was a little scary for Ed. He wasn't an extrovert that was out of his comfort zone. What if this young guy thought he was weird, right? What if this young guy thought he was being pushy? And I'm sure a thousand other excuses were filling his mind. Well, finally, the spirit kept putting it so heavy on his heart, he couldn't say no, and he decided to take the stroll down to the shop that day. And as he walked in the shop, there's the young guy over kind of in the back of the store, no one else is around, and he just goes over and sets his hand on his shoulder and begins talking to this guy about spiritual things. Well, fast forward to the end of their conversation, and this young guy winds up right then and there in his uncle's shoe shop becoming a follower of Christ. He repents of his sin and puts his faith in Jesus. One simple conversation in his life is radically impacted. But not only his life, really the spiritual trajectory of Christianity, our nation, was impacted at that point. Because even though a lot of us don't really know the name Ed Kimball, a lot of us would know the name D.L. Moody, right? And that was the young guy who was in the shoe store that day that gave his life to Christ. And D.L. Moody, from there, after his life was transformed, he would go to start a Bible training, missionary training school called Moody Bible Institute that continues to be in Chicago today. He planted one of the world's largest churches at the time. And not only that, by the end of his life, it's estimated that he preached the gospel to over 100 million people. 100 million people. The power of just a single conversation of a shy Sunday school teacher who had a love for his class students, right? 
the power of a single conversation. It's crazy when you look throughout history, there's been multiple conversations that impacted uh, the course of a nation or really the course of world history. And throughout this year, we're going to look at some of the most dynamic, some of the most life-changing, some of the most impactful conversations that have ever occurred because we are going to be looking at different conversations that Jesus had with other unique individuals. So, Over the coming months, we are going to see uh, how cultures were rewritten, how lives were transformed, and how the gospel was uh, unveiled through these conversations that Jesus had, that people had with, with the king, King Jesus. So that's kind of the name of our series, Conversations with the King. And tonight in particular, we're going to start with our first conversation. And I think it's going to be amazing that even here we are 2,000 years later, how real and relevant those words that the king spoke continue to be even to this day. So let's jump into our first conversation. Tonight, we're going to uh, dive in as Jesus is having a conversation with a guy I'm going to call the moralist. So that's the title of our sermon tonight, Jesus and the moralist. It's a man, uh, this conversation takes place between Jesus and a man named Nicodemus. He's a guy who thinks he has the answers to all of life's greatest questions, only at the end of the conversation to realize that he is completely and utterly lost. In one conversation, his entire worldview came crashing down, leaving a massive hole that only Jesus has the power to fill. So before we jump into our text, let me set the scene a little bit of where this conversation takes place. We once again find ourselves in the bustling city of Jerusalem after one of the massive Jewish celebrations that takes place a few times throughout the year. But this particular year, there was a little bit more drama and intrigue, and all of it centered around this up-and-coming rabbi named Jesus. Jesus really knew how to uh, make a buzzworthy entrance because just a couple days ago as he entered into the table, he was uh, temple, he was flipping tables, he was uh, confronting the, uh, the money changers, and he literally makes a whip out of a cord and starts driving people out of the temple. You can say that the city was abuzz with questions of who exactly is this Jesus? Well, one older Pharisee named Nicodemus decides to do some first-hand detective work. So he decides one uh, dark evening to start meandering through the winding streets of Jerusalem. He approaches a door. He's knocking on the door. Jesus probably greets him there, and they begin to have a conversation that lasts deep into the night. And that's where our story picks up tonight in John chapter 3. So we're going to read the first 15 verses together. This is what it says. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews, which means he was part of the Sanhedrin. This man came to Jesus by night, and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one could do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So he makes a, a pretty good assessment here. He says, you seem to be a prophet. You seem to, God seems to be with you. Tell us a little bit more. Well, Jesus kind of cuts right to the heart of the matter. He kind of ignores a little bit of what Nicodemus says. And Jesus responds and says, Truly, truly, I say unto you that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? 
And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the spirit. Now, Nicodemus said to him, in frustration, I think a little bit, how can these things be? He's still confused. What are you talking about, Jesus? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you of earthly things and you don't believe me, how can I, you believe me if I tell you of heavenly things? And Jesus says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man, Jesus, be lifted up that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. So as we look at this passage, there's a lot of different things going on in this conversation. But essentially, this conversation is centering on answering the question, how can a person enter into the kingdom of God? How can a person experience eternal life? And in this passage, you see Jesus and Nicodemus having contrasting answers to what they think the right answer is to this question. And it's an immensely important question for us to answer correctly because this is the question that we all want to know the right answer to. This is the question that all religions and all religious people seek to answer. How can we as sinful people inherit eternal life and be made right with the holy God? It's the most important question that we could ever ask. And Nicodemus believes that he knows the right answer. Of course he knows the answer. It's moralism. His idea is you have to just be a good person. You need to work hard and obey God's law and do all of these religious things to inherit eternal life. The, the golden ticket to going into God's kingdom is earned through trying harder, through doing more, through being a moral and good person. But Jesus comes in and he absolutely shatters that worldview. Jesus says it's only through being born again that we can truly inherit the kingdom of God. If we were to summarize what Jesus is saying in this entire passage to one preaching principle or one big idea of what's going on here, Jesus is saying that eternal life is received, not achieved. That's what's going on in this passage. Eternal life is received, not achieved. That's the big idea. That's what's going on here. Now, try to understand how absolutely radical that would have been for Nicodemus to hear. That he never saw that one coming. It completely caught him off guard. That completely contradicts the worldview that he has cherished, that he has built his life around, that he has studied and learned his entire life. It goes against everything that he knows and that he believes. Just think about what we see uh, uh, the descriptors we see about Nicodemus in just the first two verses of this passage. We see three things. He's a Pharisee. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. He's a ruler of the Jews. And then third, he comes to Jesus at night. Each of those is significant. That last one seems a little weird, but we'll get there, okay? Each of those is significant. So first, he is a, a Pharisee. Now, when we hear the Pharisees, do we give thumbs up or thumbs down? 
Thumbs down, right? Boo, right? We think bad guys, right? The Pharisees are the bad guys. They're the Vikings. They're the bears. Boo, down with the Pharisees, right? (laughs) That's what's going on. But you have to remember, we're reading this as 21st century Christians, but in a first century Jewish culture, all the Jews would have seen the Pharisees as the, the good guys, right? These are the, the spiritual elites. These are the men who take the law of Moses more seriously than anyone else. They are the, the pastors of the mega churches. They are the ones writing all the best-selling Christian books. Everyone sees the Pharisees and wants to be like them. They're the enforcers of the Mosaic law. They are the the keeper of all of the different traditions of Judaism. They religiously followed the 613 commands of the Mosaic law down to where they tithed their cooking spices. And not only that, they added thousands of extra regulations and rules through the oral tradition. These were the people who took their faith seriously. And as a Pharisee, Nicodemus would have been extremely well-educated and versed in scripture as well. In fact, look at verse 10. Jesus calls Nicodemus a teacher, right? No, he says, you are the teacher of Israel. That's a definite pronoun. That's something special there where Jesus is essentially saying, you're kind of like the top teacher in Israel at this time. So when we think about Nicodemus, he's a Pharisee, he's a spiritually elite, he's a academic scholar, And he is kind of the most revered teacher in Judaism at this time. In the first century mindset, if anybody is on the right track to go to the kingdom of heaven, it's Nicodemus. But not only that, he's a Pharisee. Second, we see he's also part of the Sanhedrin. He was a ruler of the Jews. The Sanhedrin was a group of 70 men at this time that were the ruling body over the nation of Israel. They were extremely powerful and influential. And being part of the Sanhedrin, uh, the men that were chosen for that came from the wealthiest, the most well-educated, the best pedigreed families throughout all of the tribes. So here we have a guy who's at the apex of Jewish culture. He's the most spiritual. Under the law of Moses, he's the most righteous. Nobody knows more about the Old Testament scriptures than him. He's got the PhD. He's got the diplomas. He's got everything on his wall. If anybody can earn their way into heaven, it's this guy. But notice the third thing that we see, the third descriptor we see about Nicodemus. He comes to Jesus at night. I know for us, that just kind of seems like this weird tidbit that John's just kind of throwing in. It's okay, he came at night, what, woohoo, he had a lantern or something. Okay, great, like, why does this matter, John? But you have to remember the context. Every time John uses the word night in his gospel, it is always symbolizing spiritual and moral darkness. It's always spiritualizing someone who's in the realm of being lost and unregenerate. So when it says that Nicodemus came at night, it's talking about the idea, yes, he came during the night uh, to Jesus, but he's in his own spiritual darkness that he doesn't even yet realize. His night is darker than he knows. Nicodemus comes to Jesus confident that he has it all figured out and he knows the path to get to heaven. And imagine Nicodemus' utter disbelief when Jesus looks him in the eyes and says, truly I say to you, Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. In that moment, Jesus directly contradicts the false worldview and belief system that Nicodemus had built his entire life around. 
For the first time ever, Nicodemus is feeling a little uncertain. He's feeling a little unsecure in his standing with God because he's looking at his resume and saying, is that not really enough? He always thought that salvation could be achieved, but now he's hearing that it has to be received. He'd always thought if you wanted to inherit eternal life, you needed to follow all of God's rules. You needed to tithe a certain amount of money. You needed to attend church a certain amount of days. You better be a legalist who follows God's lots. You better make sure the scales tip in your favor. In a nutshell, Nicodemus' worldview and understanding of salvation was do more better. (laughs) You got to do more better. That's how you get your ticket to heaven. But you know, here's the troubling thing. There are billions of people in the world that we live in that still buy into that false ideology that the way that we inherit eternal life is by doing more better. Just think about all of the other major world religions and how they say you can inherit eternal life. Every other religion aside from Christianity teaches that I have to obey in order to be accepted by God. Literally, every other religion says I have to contribute to my own salvation. I have to atone for my sins. I have to make things right. It's all up to what I do. Just think about uh, the religion of, of Islam for say. If you want to inherit eternal life, if you want to go to heaven, if you want to appease Allah, you have to obey the five pillars of, of Islam. You have to try really hard to be a good person. You have to hope that your good outweighs the bad when you go before the final judgment. Just a few days ago, I was over in Istanbul, Turkey, and it's a city that is filled with beautiful and gigantic mosques. And one of the mosques we were in front of was the Blue Mosque, and there were plaques uh, for hundreds of yards describing the religion of Islam and telling us all the different things that you have to do in order to earn your salvation. Just think about Hinduism, some of the Eastern religions. In Hinduism, you escape this reincarnation cycle that you're trapped in by ridding yourself of all the bad karma in your life. And the only way that you can do that is by selfish devotion and service to a particular God through getting this absolute understanding of the universe or by mastering the actions you need to fully appease the gods. When you think about Buddhism, you enter into nirvana, this blissful eternal state, only by following the noble eightfold path, which is all dealing about being a good and moral person. We even think about here in the States, maybe you've had a missionary come to your door and ring the doorbell called a, a Mormon missionary And as they are sharing the gospel with you, you'll quickly realize that they are earning their spot in heaven by doing things like that, by trying to evangelize, by doing good works, by doing all these religious works. They don't know whether or not they're going to make it, so they have to try harder and do more. But even more insidiously, the same false belief of moralism is oftentimes masquerading in Christianity as well right here in our culture. All around us, we encounter a massively pervasive false gospel that proclaims good people go to heaven. We see it all the time. Pretty much every religious survey or poll that I've ever kind of encountered usually says a couple of the same things. One, the vast majority of Americans still believe in eternity. They still believe in heaven after you die. And two, the vast majority of Americans also believe that It's good people that go to heaven and that's how you get your ticket to eternal life. 
a poll research uh, poll that just came out a couple years ago said that seven out of 10 Americans said that they believe in a literal heaven and they described heaven as a place where good people go to be rewarded for their lives. 70% of Americans, that's their understanding of how you inherit the kingdom of God. This passage is as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago. You know, it it breaks my heart when I stop and think that these are people in our neighborhoods. These are people in our, our workplaces. These are people sometimes in our, our churches that have never experienced the joy of being born again. And they're trusting in their moral resume to make them right with God one day. They think, of course I'm going to heaven. I was born to a Christian family. I've attended church a lot of my life. I did confirmation. I was baptized at one point. I look at all the good things that I do. I give to the church. I tithe a lot. A lot of people look at all the actions they've done rather than saying, have I rightly responded to the gospel? It's just as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago. But Jesus makes it clear, salvation, eternal life, they don't come from personal effort or achievement. Nicodemus wasn't good enough. If Nicodemus wasn't good enough to earn eternal life, neither are we. Scripture makes it absolutely clear that no one is saved by their performance or their good works. Because no matter how good we might be compared to one another, we all fall short of God's standard of goodness and righteousness, which is perfection. Scripture tells us there's none righteous, no, not one, for we have all sinned and come short of God's standard. And deep down at our core, we all know that to be true. Because no matter how good we think we are, if we look deep down at who we are, we know that we have rejected God's commands and we have replaced God as, uh, we have replaced God with all these other idols in our lives. Things that we worship, things that steal our time, our attention, our, our worship away from him. Because of that, because of our sin, because of our disobedience, it says the wages of sin is death. We are spiritually dead people and dead people can't bring themselves back to life. It's only through being born again that we can inherit eternal life. That's what Jesus is saying in this passage. We have to be born again. Or to translate that phrase another way, we have to be born from above. We have to have a spiritual birth. We have to be born of the Holy Spirit and go from being children of God's wrath to children of God's love. And you know, that brings us to an important question. What does it mean to be born again? How many of you have heard that phrase before? I'm a born-again Christian, right? Like Billy, uh, Billy Sunday, uh, not Billy Sunday, Billy Graham, sorry. Billy Graham would go around and that was kind of his, yeah, I don't know Billy Sunday, but Billy Graham would go around and that was one of his taglines, right? To be a born-again Christian. We hear that terminology a lot, but what does it actually mean? Kind of sounds a little cliche, kind of sounds a little cheesy at times, but, but why do we use this phrase? Well, it, it comes directly from this passage and we need to understand what it actually means to be born again. And it's not such an obvious answer because obviously Nicodemus didn't get it. When Jesus says you have to be born again, his first response is, Jesus, you have to explain the physiology of this to me a little bit. He's thinking, I don't understand how I can go back and be born again out of my mother's womb. Like, I, I'm just not getting it, Jesus. Can you explain a little bit, right? Like, he's, he's taking this very literally. And thankfully, Jesus is not being literal here. He's being metaphorical, right? All the mothers in the room, you're glad you don't have to birth your kids twice, right? That's like not exactly what Jesus is talking about here. 
Being born again is not a reference to a second physical birth. It's a reference to a brand new spiritual birth. And when Nicodemus still didn't get it, Jesus responds and he says, he kind of flushes out what that means. He says, you have to be born of water and the spirit. He says, you have to be born of the Holy Spirit. You have to have the Holy Spirit come into your life and give you a new spiritual life. You have to go from being dead in your sins and your trespasses to alive in Christ. And this terminology of you have to be born of water and the Spirit, Jesus is uh, borrowing from the uh, prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 36. He's alluding to this prophecy that was made many, many years ago. This is what Ezekiel wrote all those years ago, talking about God here. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean from all of your uncleanliness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my Holy Spirit, my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey all of my rules. Being born again is a symbolic way of describing what takes place in our lives at the moment of conversion. The moment when we go from being a spiritually dead person to a person who's spiritually alive in Christ. Because at conversion, God permanently cleanses us from our sin. He cleanses our heart from all of our unrighteousness, all of our sin, all of our shame. And it's God that does that. It's not us contributing to it. When I read this passage, it reminds me of one of those Dawn soap commercials where they always play after there's an oil spill, right? So every time there's a big oil spill in the ocean, they always show these little emotional commercials of a duck wallowing around in the oil, like in the mire, looking like it's about ready to die, right? And then what happens? The rescue worker comes and plucks the little ducky from the oil, and they come and squirt Dawn soap all over it and scrub it clean, and then the happy duck is fluttering around at the end and says, environmentalists use Dawn, or something like that, right? Like, that's the idea. But, but that's the image I see in this. The idea is we're, we're kind of the little ducks wallowing around in the mire of our sin and our, our brokenness and our shame, and, and we can't cleanse ourselves. We're going to die unless someone comes in and takes us out and cleanses us and washes us and gives us a second life, a new life. And that's what God does. God comes in. God does the work. When a person is born again, they're justified of their sins. They're adopted as children into God's family. And they're given the amazing gift of the Holy Spirit to come reside within them to help them sanctify their, their minds and their wills and their emotions. But we have to remember the key. Being born again is not something that we can ever achieve. It's something that we receive. I mean, just pause and think about that analogy that Jesus actually uses of birth, of being born again. Now, when a baby is born, does the baby contribute a lot of work to the process of being born? Does the baby do much in the birthing process? No, right? There's definitely someone in the birthing room doing a lot of suffering and working really hard for that baby to be born, but it's not the baby. Obviously, it's the father, right? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. It's the mother. It's the mother. I'm just joking. I'm just joking. It's the mother. It's the mother. It's the mother who suffers the pain. It's the mother who's doing all of the work. It's the mother who labors to birth this baby and bring this new baby into the world. 
Well, Jesus is using that terminology to talk about salvation. He says spiritual birth, conversion. It's accomplished not through the work of the baby that's being born. It's accomplished by the pain and the suffering and the labor of somebody else. Who had to suffer and go through pain and labor in order for us to have spiritual life? It was Jesus, right? Obviously, it's Jesus. Jesus on the cross. And he makes that illusion so much clearer in John uh, chapter 16. Jesus, in verse 21, says, he uses this analogy again. He says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. He's using this as an analogy of his hour coming when he has to go to the cross. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy of the human being being brought into the world. So also, you will have sorrow now, because he says, I'm getting ready to go into the labor pains, to die, to suffer. But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. And no one will take your joy from you because you'll have a new spiritual life that no one can ever harm or take away. Jesus compares himself here to a mother giving birth. On the cross, he experienced the uncomprehensible pain and sorrow necessary to atone for our sins. On the cross, there was sorrow and pain, but on the other side, there was joy because spiritual life had been secured for all of mankind. The love that Jesus has for us is incredible. And the more, uh, and we are more loved in Christ than we ever thought possible. And Jesus on the cross paved the way for us to be born again. He endured all the pain that allows us to be born again. But that brings us to the last question we really need to ask. How can we be born again? If that's the process, if that's all of those things, if we can't, and that's what Nicodemus winds up asking. He says, how can these things be? He says, if you have to be born again to get into heaven and you can't earn it, you can't work to achieve it, you can't use your resume to attain it, how do you get this spiritual birth? How can you have conversion? How can you experience that new spiritual life? And Jesus answers Nicodemus' question in two ways. First, he, re he rebukes Nicodemus for being an ignorant person, right? He looks at him, he says, you're the teacher, <laughs> You're the big guy, right? I see your PhD diplomas on the wall. You've studied scripture inside and out, and you're not getting this? He says, come on, Nicodemus. This is elementary stuff, right? Because Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, the entire Old Testament is pointing out that you need a savior. The entire point of the law, as uh, the apostle Paul wrote in Romans 3.20, says, by the works of the law, no human being can be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. When God gave the law, it wasn't there for the Jews to try to show their righteousness and earn their salvation. It was there to show them that they were sinners in need of a Messiah to come and be the perfect, spotless lamb that could forever atone of their sins. But instead of looking for a savior, Nicodemus thought he could be his own savior, and he missed all of the prophecies. So first, Jesus kind of rebukes Nicodemus for being ignorant a little bit, but then second, in verses 14 and 15, Jesus decides to be, get really crystal clear about who he is and why he has come to earth. He says, the son of man that's descend, descended from heaven, he came to be lifted up, just like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. He gives an analogy there. 
Now, for a lot of, a lot of us who aren't as well-versed in maybe uh, the Pentateuch in the Old Testament, we might not get that symbolism, but Nicodemus would have immediately got it. Jesus is hearkening back uh, hundreds of years earlier to Numbers chapter 21 when the nation of Israel was still in the 40 years wilderness for their rebellion. Now, this account takes place after Israel has done what they always do, grumbled, rebelled, and sinned against God, right? And God at this moment decides to punish them. And what does he do? He sends serpents into their midst. Now, when you hear serpents, don't think like little friendly gardener snakes, right? We're talking more about like pit vipers with big fangs that bite, right? So when these vipers come into the camp, they were biting all sorts of people. And the moment those snakes bit them, they were lethal. They were deadly. They deposited a deadly venom into people's bodies that no one could cure, no one could get rid of, and they would eventually die from it. And what did the people of Israel do? They repented of their sin, they cried out for forgiveness, and they asked Moses for grace. They had no hope of being saved unless God decided to intervene. And God did. He told Moses, go and make a bronze serpent, put it high up on a pole right in the middle of the camp, and anyone who's bitten by a snake, when they look up at the serpent in faith, they can be saved. Now think about that picture. That's the image Jesus wants us to see when we think about what he did on the cross. It really makes a lot of sense. Because all of us, we haven't been bitten by a fiery serpent, but we've been certainly bitten by this, the, bitten by sin in our lives. Every single human being has had sin attack us. We've chosen sin. It's injected its lethal spiritual venom in us, and we are all dead people walking. We can't fix it. There's no anti-venom. There's no antidote. There's nothing we can do to get rid of the venom that's pulsing through our veins. It's part of our broken nature. We need a deliverer. And Jesus says, just like that serpent that was raised up to where anybody looked on it with faith, when I'm raised up on the cross, dying the death that you deserve after I've lived the life that you needed, if anyone believes in me, they can be saved. That's what verse 15 says. If anyone believes in him, they can have eternal life. Jesus came to earth to be lifted up on the cross to be the substitutionary atonement for our sins. All we have to do to be born again is to believe and receive. That's all we have to do. We have to believe and receive. All the man-made religions of the world tell us that we have to do more better if you want to be accepted by God. The gospel tells us it's already been done. All that's left for you is to believe and receive. What does that mean to believe? Biblical belief is pretty simple to understand as we look at what scripture talks about when it says true saving belief. We really just see two spirit-enabled components of biblical belief. It's the words repentance and, and faith. Repentance means that we turn away from our sin. We're choosing to say, you know what, I'm turning away from the life that I, the sins that I committed, the idolatry and that I was uh, consumed by, and I'm choosing instead to follow Jesus. But repentance also means that we repent of our own righteousness that's its filthy rags, and we pe- repent of the idea of trying to earn our own way to heaven. And we say, you know what, I confess that I'm broken. I can't fix 
myself. That's why the gospel's so hard. All the other religions in the world say we contribute to our own salvation because we like that. We like to earn things. It takes great humility to say I'm so desperately and utterly broken, more broken than I ever realized. I need a savior. We repent of our sin and then we put our faith in Jesus. We put our trust in him. We stop trusting in our resume. It's not I'm saved because I'm a good person or I went to church or I did confirmation or I was baptized. And it's none of those things. I know I'm trusting that I'm saved because I trust in Jesus. I'm looking at the cross. I'm keeping my eyes on him. So that really brings us to one final question. How do I know if I've been born again? That's really the question. How do I know if that spiritual transformation is taking place in my life? How do I know if I've experienced true repentance and faith? Well, the biblical answer is pretty simple. You'll see spiritual fruit. You'll see a changed life. (laughs) I think of what Jesus says in John chapter 15. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. From apart from me, you can do nothing. So he's saying, you're gonna bear fruit. It's part of being connected to the living branch. If you're really connected, you're gonna be alive as well. Jesus even alludes to that idea in verse eight of our passage tonight where he's talking about the wind and the wind is a metaphor for the spirit. He says, even though you can't see the wind, you can hear it and you can see the effects of the wind, right? You know it's there. It's the same that's true if the spirit is present in someone's life. Even though we can't see the Holy Spirit, right? And there's no tongues of fire dispensing on anyone right now, right? Like that, that's not happening, but we can see the effects of the spirit on someone's life life. I think about when I was in junior high, uh, a massive windstorm kind of swept through uh, the area that I lived at that time. And though I couldn't see the wind, I certainly saw the effects of it because 30 trees in our yard got knocked down like that. 30 massive trees like that, right? That was a powerful windstorm. There was no denying that the wind had blown through that area. Well, when you have the power of the spirit in your life, there's no denying that he was there either you're going to see the fruit of a transformed life. The fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. You're gonna see a deeper love, a peace that surpasses all understanding. There's gonna be the joy and the freedom that I'm no longer working to try to earn my identity. I'm no longer trying to achieve salvation. I know that I'm accepted by God because I've received his love through faith in Jesus Christ. So, you know, I have just a couple words of application for us tonight as we end our time of Jesus and the moralist. I want to speak to two different groups a little bit tonight. The the first one is, uh, I want us to all ask the question, have I really been born again? Have I ever experienced that spiritual transformation? Have I experienced that moment in my life where my life has been impacted and transformed by the power of the spirit in my life. If we were to ask the question, what am I trusting in? What am I trusting in? If I were to stand before God today and he were to say, why should I let you into my kingdom? What what would we say? Would we hold up our resume and say, look at all the good things I've done? Or would we say, I can enter into your kingdom because I've repented of my sin and put my faith in Christ? Are we trying to achieve our salvation? Or have we received it? through believing. So I want us to ask that question tonight. But then second, for those of us who are followers of Christ, who are sure and confident that we we know that transformation has taken place, 
I just want to say we need to be so on guard against legalism creeping back into our lives. It's the craziest thing. We know that we're saved by grace alone, by faith alone, but then after a while, we can start slipping back into this mindset that, you know what? I have to do certain things to be loved and accepted by God. I have to be doing these things to really be a good Christian and for God to accept me. It's easy for us to forget, to focus on the delight of having a relationship with the Lord and turn our mind to the duty of having a relationship with the Lord. We can begin to believe the lie once again that I have to perform in order to be loved and accepted by Jesus. We turn into busy Marthas running around thinking of all the things that have to be done instead of Marys who are sitting at Jesus' feet and just enjoying the love that we have with our Savior. So maybe some of you out there tonight are just feeling worn down. You're just discouraged. And you've fallen into this idea that you have to earn and achieve God's love, God's affection, and God's approval in your life. That's not true. We don't work in order to be accepted. We're accepted and therefore we work. Don't ever mix that up. So I just want to close in a word of prayer. I want you guys just to have an opportunity to examine your own lives and then we'll continue to worship together tonight. Father, what a challenging passage we read tonight, but not just a challenging passage, what a hopeful passage. It's incredible to pause and think that you loved us so much that even when we were dead in our sins and our trespasses and we deserve to be dead because we were the ones that chose that, you sent Jesus, the Son of Man, to descend from heaven to be on the cross and to take the punishment for our sin. Father, forgive us for thinking that salvation is something that we can achieve and earn. No, it's only received by grace and by faith in Christ. So Father, if there's anybody here that hasn't experienced the profound joy, the profound freedom, the profound hope that comes from having their life touched by your saving grace, I pray tonight might be the night that they put their trust in you. For those of us who do have a relationship with you, Father, help us to remember that our identity is not in what we do, but it's in who we are in Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.